This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah Show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalai. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour with me, my co-host, Steve Ovens. Welcome, sir. Good evening, sir. How are you? Well, you know, we're cutting it a little close, but uh, we're here. Yeah. Well, it goes that way sometimes, right? It, it does. So it's an exciting night. We've got a, we've got a packed show lined up for you tonight. Uh, the team from Speed Technologies joins me. So if you haven't heard, we released our special edition episode uh, last week. And so you can find that at podcast.asnoahshow.com. And we told the story of how Speed got started. So this week, the team has joined me in the studio to answer questions. Welcome, guys. Thanks for having us. Yeah, Thank thanks. Thanks for taking the time to be here. So I guess we'll just, we'll start by just introducing everybody. Say your name, what you do here. Hey, I am Kenny. I am the department head for installations at Alta Speed here. And uh, I'm just uh, excited to be on the show tonight with you guys. Uh, I'm Isaac. I'm a new employee, uh, still learning. I'm uh, Peter. I guess do a little bit of everything. You do? So they'll be joining us. If you have a question for the Alta Speed team, give us a call 855 450 NOAA, 855-450-6624. Send an email to live at altaspeed.com or join us in our interactive Jitsi room. We have a, uh, we have a, oh, that's a screener. Okay. So, uh, Steve, let's dig in to feedback. Again, your feedback goes to the front of the show. You direct the show. So send emails to live at asknoahshow.com and we will address it there. Uh, so our first email comes in from Aaron. Aaron says, howdy, Noah. In episode 248, you talked about a desktop application called Open Paper for digitally archiving all of those pesky paper documents you may still have. You mentioned about wanting a more network-based solution, e.g. something for the whole family. I immediately wanted to write in to tell you about the Paperless Project, now called Paperless NG. You can learn more at paperless ng dot read the docs dot io however i wanted to write a post on how to set it up with docker and i finally have paperless ng allows you to upload documents digitally to a document library and then through the magic of ocr you can do text-based searches on all of your documents also what's more languages then english the kicker is that you can integrate it with an ftp server and your network printer to scan and drop files in paperless ng to process i for example still get paper bills in the mail. And once paid, I mark them paid on paper, and they go straight into the scanner, which sends them to my paperless NG library. I wrote a blog post on how to set this up. If you feel worthy, please share it on the community in the show. And he links to com slash post slash going dash paperless. Love the show. Stay awesome. Aaron. So, Steve, have you used paperless, and what are your thoughts on it? I actually haven't used this yet. Um Mostly because my system is very rudimentary. I got a scanner only this year um, because previously I just took pictures of things. But then I got a little, uh, a tiny little brother scanner that's about just slightly bigger than the size of a paper, piece of paper. And uh, it does the job for me. It zips things off to PDF and then I just kind of park those on Nextcloud. So I don't, I don't really have 
a need currently for this just because my current process is already kind of uh, well dialed in. Okay. How about you guys? Anybody from AltaSpeed have a bunch of paper things that you say, hey, I would love the ability to get this into some sort of digital format so I don't have to juggle papers all over the place. Yeah, actually, I just ran into this issue recently, and I hadn't come up with a solution yet, but I might look into this. Um, I'm, As you may know, Noah knows me pretty well, I'm kind of a car junkie, and I, and I really like taking good care of my cars and stuff. So anytime I go in to get my car serviced, uh, typically they'll give you a, a fairly lengthy report on the inspection of the vehicle showing you, hey, these things need to be fixed and all that kind of stuff. And one of the things I'd really like to do is have a really well-documented library of all of those documents where I can go through and be like, hey, this was serviced on this date on the car and be able to reference exactly uh, the maintenance history on my vehicle. And being able to like pull some of those documents into a database would be incredible. The thing that kills me is that, un- that, that report undoubtedly, Kenny, starts as a PDF. Oh, and absolutely, they, yeah. And, th- and then they print it to hard copy. And then you have to scan it back into something digital. Why don't you just give me the thing as a PDF? Like, story <laughs> would save us all that process. Hey, you know what, Aaron? Thanks for writing in. We appreciate it. Our second email comes in from Stavy. Stavy writes in, says, Greeting, Mr. Chalai and Mr. Ovens. I have a VPN situation, and I suspect others experience it as well, but I just want to throw it out there to see how others might manage it. I'm not a big gamer or streamer, and I haven't done a lot of torrenting for years, so I would consider my network traffic to be quite low compared to many others. What I describe here is related to general web surfing and usage of online business apps, which requires very little data transfer. The exception is when I do my Restic online backups or check, which I mentioned later. The situation is that I can't seem to just turn on a VPN and forget about it, since at some point during the day or the week, the VPN traffic gets messed up in some way. For example, I might initiate a Restic online backup job on a Linux machine and leave it chugging away for an hour only to find my VPN is messing up. Sometimes I'll have Mulvad running and find out that in some way it's messing up my connection. I'll have to switch to rise up VPN and move things along fine or vice versa. A situation specific to my phone that's very predictable is that Mulvad isn't functional on the T-Mobile network data network. Due to this, I use rise up VPN and I'm on mobile data with the phone, I might switch to Molvad when I have a Wi-Fi signal since WireGuard is faster. To see if I could solve or reduce my temperamental VPN situation at home, I installed a GLI net router and installed Molvad on it so all of my devices automatically have VPN at home. But I experience the same issues as above on the VPN oftentimes just decides not to work at all, so I have to turn it off at the router. I've thrown kind of a big ball of mud at you guys, and I'm not necessarily because I'm asking you to solve these issues, but rather I'm wondering if you guys experience the same sort of general issue with daily use of VPNs. If so, maybe you can propose a different way of using them. I'm a card-carrying member of the Tinfoil Hat Club, so going without a VPN just doesn't feel right to me. I'd like some insight from you and others. If you're using VPNs persistently, as I do, Stacy. So uh, I guess let's start with this. Steve, your thoughts. So I absolutely use a VPN on my phone at all times. Um, I happen to use Surfshark, um, not because they were the best or, you know, they ranked the highest on all these sort of things. I got a really good deal on it one day and it was the client works pretty well on Android. Um, but I have actually experienced exactly what you're talking about. Every once in a while, it seems to be less frequent than what you seem to be experiencing. Um, it will just stop like pages. I can't get to certain pages or um, it looks like it's going to load or it's extremely slow. And I actually have to go in and, and disable the internet um, 
just because the way that I have it set up, it's got, um, it's got a VPN kill switch, which means that if the VPN dies, the, it's going to cut the internet off on your phone so that you don't accidentally, uh, start using a network that you didn't intend to if the, if the VPN has a problem. So there's a lot of VPNs that will have that kind of feature. I like it. Um, because it helps me know that, you know, if, if I happen to be traveling on public Wi-Fi, for example, which in the before time was actually fairly frequent, that I wouldn't accidentally leak a bunch of information over that if the VPN itself had a problem. So yeah, I have to go in and kill it. I have to do that every once in a while, although not nearly as frequently as what it sounds like that the, the listener does. How much of a performance uh, degradation do you see using a VPN? Essentially, the concept is you're connecting back to someone else's network, whether that be encrypted or ever, for the security reasons. But do you see much of a performance gap uh, in network speeds, and and how does that practically look for you? So I'm not really the best person to ask because if I get my email, that's pretty much all I care about. Um, I download my Spotify playlist before I leave the house. which is really weird because I have one of those unlimited plans from T-Mobile. So I'm not really worried about the data cap. And it's it's one of those, quote unquote, true uh, unlimited plans where they're not supposed to ever throttle you. So um, having said that, because I don't use my phone, like I don't really use my phone as mobile internet except for very small tasks. I don't even usually use it for navigation. Um I can't really tell you how much it impacts me because, like I said, if I get my push notifications from Home Assistant and I get my uh, Telegram messages in my email, that's all that I'm looking for. So a couple of things here for um, uh, uh, for 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 Stacy, um, I I think to start there's a, there is a different way that you could utilize VPN, right? So if you, for example, uh, chose to do WireGuard. You can specify which routes are going to hit which WireGuard connections. Um, so, for example, the way that I use that is I use WireGuard to get back to my house. And so I'm going to make up an IP scheme, 192.168.55.x, right? Anytime my laptop sees a network traffic destined for 192.168.55, it knows to send that out the WireGuard tunnel. So WireGuard sits there dormant. The computer asks for that that path. It doesn't have it. So WireGuard spins up, establishes a connection to my home, sends the traffic there. As soon as that's done, after a little bit of dormancy, tunnel comes back down. And I have been able to set that. We, most of our clients are still uh, uh, standardized on OpenVPN. And so I haven't had the ability to deploy this at wide scale yet. But the idea would be that... It, as, so long as you have different network paths to the different places that you want to go, WireGuard can handle that in the background. So that's one way that you might look at doing that a slightly different way. Here's the other thing that stands out to me about this email. He talks about using a GLI net router, and, and we're very familiar with the GLI net routers. In fact, they're often what we recommend when somebody says, hey, I, I need to have the ability to get to my VPN from anywhere. Can I just have a box set up and ready to go? We will set up a GLI net and send it with them. Um but it is a very underpowered device. It's a very low cost. I mean, they're sub 50 bucks, a very, very uh, low powered device. And so I suspect that you would run into some stability issues if you tried to use that on an ongoing basis. You might consider using something like a NetGate 1100 uh, or a NetGate 3100 uh, or build like a Protectly box and, and flash it with OpenSense or PFSense. 
and see if you're able to establish a connection, uh, you know, with your with your VPN service provider with mine at home. Anytime it drops the VPN, oftentimes it will automatically reestablish itself every once in a great while. The VPN service itself hangs up inside of the router. And I don't mean the services in the thing I pay for. I mean, the services in the process that's running on the router and I have to go in there and bounce that. Um, but for the most part, it just goes out to the Internet and it and it just works. So that's not really the issue that I believe the the writer was was addressing here. So I, I chopped this down a little bit because um, it was quite the essay that they sent in. So I I kind of spared us reading it all out. But okay. to sum up, one of their one of their VPNs is using uh, WireGuard. That's the one that doesn't work on T-Mobile, and the other gotcha. one is OpenVPN. So they're balancing between the two different protocols. Um, but I see. Specifically, what's happening is the the VPN. It's almost like it just stops. Be, it stops responding, and and I have experienced this myself. So I, I knew exactly what the what the listener was talking about. Mm. So that's the problem they're trying to solve. It's not that they're losing connection to the VPN. the 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 tunnel stays up, but then the traffic either comes to a grinding halt or it doesn't traverse at all. And I've had that too. And I'm not sure what is causing that necessarily. Sure. Peter, uh, your thoughts. I mean, one thing you could do would be uh, when it hangs, run like a trace route so you can see where the traffic is failing. Mm-hmm. That would help you see whether is it, a, is it a router being underpowered or is it, you know, some kind of configuration on, on their part. Yeah. Okay. So, or, uh, or, so if you, so are you able to hit the gateway on the other side of the VPN tunnel? Yeah. And that would tell you if it, Hey, and, and then maybe if you are and traffic is dropping after that, maybe reach out to your VPN provider. I guess the thing that would make sense there is sounds like if he de- disconnects and reconnects, it comes back. Yeah. That's, that's the, the, I guess the rub here is that, and I have the same thing. It's for me, it seems to be once every week and a half or two weeks where I have to, I, the internet just stops working on the phone. And again, cause I use it so little, it's like, Hey, why I haven't gotten an email in the last hour? This is weird. And then I go and check and there's no internet signal on my phone, even though it looks like everything's okay. And it says the VPN's connected. It's just the traffic goes nowhere. I guess, I guess the question would be whether is it, is it dying at your router or is it dying at the VPN provider? Mm. Yeah. Which it, could, could it be like, you know, uh, timeout on the account or if you haven't, if it's sent any traffic recently or. Yeah, that's that. Those are all good things to check into. So maybe take a look, Stacy. Um, and here's what always happens with stuff like this. We'll get a question. Somebody will write in and undoubtedly the next week we're going to come back and there's going to be five or 10 more emails of people that say, Hey, I've experienced that and here's how I fixed it. So if you're hearing this and you can help Stacy, then write us an email live at asknoahshow.com. Our third email comes in from Steven. Steven writes in and says, Hi there. Just wanted to mention that LibreOffice has collaboration built into the Calc spreadsheet. I haven't tried it to know if it works well, but collaboration in Calc in LibreOffice Calc document sharing allows simultaneous write access for many users. Every user who wants to collaborate should enter a name in tools options LibreOffice user data uh, tab page and then he links to the help doc in LibreOffice so this is in reference to I believe it was last week the week before uh, somebody wrote in and asked what is the best way to deal with collaborative editing on spreadsheets I'm curious does LibreOffice I know I've looked into this in the past there's another service uh, not necessarily a service a, a 
open source project called OnlyOffice mm-hmm. that has a product very similar to Google Drive where the actual word editors and the, and the Excel, you know, spreadsheet uh, programs are running in a web browser and it has a back end where you can do collaboration very similar to Google Drive. It, are they referencing that on a does does LibreOffice have something similar? Is that what they're working off of, yeah, or is so this I, a local? System? I think when the question came up, it was specifically about Nextcloud and the integration of oh, some, gotcha. something that could run in Nextcloud. And I think this is then saying, hey, if you're looking to do collaborative spreadsheets, tons of options that came up for Word documents. There weren't a lot of low hanging fruit for spreadsheets, so I think that's where this suggestion comes in. Gotcha. I know OnlyOffice does provide integration with uh, Nextcloud, and actually really good integration. I believe actually there's a way. Uh, you can get it so that way your Nextcloud instance is the server for OnlyOffice. Okay. And they do uh, provide an option for uh, spreadsheet uh, calculator. Yeah, I've got I've got OnlyOffice set up on my Nextcloud, and it's just a one-click install. You have to you have to you have to install the server, and then you have to install the connector. Okay, Steve, any thoughts? No, I haven't tried it. Like we talked about when Naylor was asking about this. Um, I don't have a lot of use for collaborative spreadsheet editing in my job. Yeah, you and me both. Uh, 1-855-450-NOTES, 855-450-6624, the email live at asknoahshow.com. You have a question for the AltaSpeed tech team. We're here and answering those tonight. Our fourth email comes in from Hockey Fan, a switch from Ubuntu to Arch. Hey, Noah, I'm a longtime listener, even though I'm currently behind on episodes. Just had my first kit. Congratulations! Never emailed or called in before. Anyway, to my question, I've been using Linux for quite a while now. I use Linux on my personal PC, Windows for work. I've tried a few different distros over the year and just realized that I've pretty much only ever used Debian or Ubuntu distros for an extended period of time. As a result, I feel like I'm almost lost in an Arch-based distro. I went to do a sudo apt-get update and I remembered that Arch doesn't use apt and I would need to do some learning before I'm comfortable with Arch. Any resource that you can recommend, either an Arch newbie for people moving from Ubuntu to Arch? I remember you mentioning an Arch-based distro that was specifically meant for learning Arch and building from scratch. But from for the life of me, I can't remember the name of it. I think you might have even had the guy on the show. This is probably two, three years at this point. Not sure if the project is still up and running. Thanks again for all you do. You're the only Linux podcast I listen to anymore, and I've learned so much from you over the few years. HockeyFan37. Hey, Thanks so much. That means more to me than you'll ever truly know. So I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna let Steve have the last word on this one because he's the resident Arch fan. I'll tell you, I think what you're thinking of is Endeavor OS. It was previously uh, uh, Antegros and Targos, and then when Antargos wound down, uh, Endeavor OS came up and kind of replaced and filled that void. And so what I like about it is you download an ISO like you would ordinarily download an ISO. You install Arch like you would ordinarily install Arch. When you get updates, it's just going to pop up and say, hey, do you want to update? You know, in my case, Discover. I click OK. It updates. When I want to install something, I either can go through Discover. I can just drop to the command line and say, yay, uh, you know, uh, Firefox. And it'll give me a list of every package that's available uh, either in the in, in the Arch user repository, which is where the big advantage of Arch is. It's fine for day to day. Hey, I just need Firefox, Thunderbird. Uh, and a terminal, every distro will do that. Where Arch kind of shines and 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 takes its takes its own is in two ways. One is you have the opportunity to perpetually update your system forever. And I have an actual Arch system that I installed years ago on an old ThinkPad T420 
it's still running to this day. Oh, by the way, it's still up to date. Uh, and, and nothing is ever broken on it. And the second part is like literally any piece of software, if anyone in the world has found a way to make it run on Linux, it's going to be in the AUR. And so as far as a resource, I would point you to the Arch Wiki, because even if you're not using Arch, the Arch Wiki is a great resource for information. But so that would be where I'd start the conversation. I would let Steve take it from there. You use Arch every day, Steve. What are your thoughts? So I believe the distro that the writer is looking for is Arco Linux. So it's an Arch-based distro for, I'm going to put beginners in, in quotes because I haven't actually used it and I have to take them at their word. Um, but the idea was that it's supposed to kind of help you um, have a graduated learning experience so that it kind of holds your hand and you can essentially turn some dials to decide how how close to Arch proper do you want to get. Um, aside from that, I'll just second the Arch Wiki. Um, I personally look for walkthroughs when I'm doing things, but man, is that Arch Wiki great. Uh, internally at Red Hat, we pass that around to each other because while it doesn't apply directly to Red Hat, they co- they're so up to date with their packages that chances are someone has already found it in the Arch community how to do a thing and you just have to translate that for your distribution. So I know it's a little intimidating as a new user because when I made the switch to Arch, I was, I'm not sure if intimidating is the right word. I think lazy is the right word. <laughs> I was a little too lazy to actually read the Arch wiki, even though the, it's, it's fantastic. Uh, going through the installation steps on the Arch wiki, I'm like, nah, man, like someone summarized this for me. Um, <laughs> and so I tend to go that route. Because there are tons of people, myself included, that when we figure out how to do a thing in Arch, we'll publish it somewhere, whether it's Medium or OpenSource.com or Make Use Of often has Arch Linux stuff. And uh, they're all over the place. So if if reading the Arch Wiki isn't your thing, because they give you, they not only give you the the problem and solution, they give you the, the nitty gritty details of what's happening if that's too much for you, look for someone who's translated that for you because it's definitely out there. Uh, I put a link in there that uh, it has the equivalence uh, uh, commands between Arch. Oh, that's hilarious. Is this a play on Rosetta Stone? Yeah, I think so. Oh, and that's funny. I, uh, on my main uh, laptop, I use Arco Linux. Um, and it's, it's great because they have... Uh, they have ISOs where you can just install the ISO like you would any normal Linux distro, and it sets it all the way up, all the way up to the desktop. And that's great getting into it, because then you can easily configure, and you can get into it really easily. But then they also have ISOs that they do some of the nitty-gritty things, like setting up the partitioning and stuff, mm-hmm. but it just drops you to a console, and then they have different repos for different like desktop environments where they have bash scripts that you can go through and run to set up the desktop. But then you can also look at them and see what are the commands that they're running. Okay. And so it allows you to quickly get into it. But then when you want to learn a little bit more and get a little bit more comfortable at setting up Arch all by yourself, you, you can. And you can kind of ease your way into it. 
Well, this is fantastic. So what what Peter linked, and we'll have it for you in the show notes at podcast.usnoahshow.com. It's a link to the Arch Wiki, but it's Pac-Man slash Rosetta. And it literally is a table of, hey, if you type apt install in Debian or Ubuntu, in Fedora, it's going to be DNF install. And in Arch, it's Pac-Man TAC S. If you type, you know... uh apt slash auto is apt space auto remove in pac-man it's going to be pac-man space cap attack q d t q so they have this all uh, they have this all linked and broken out into this nice little table so we'll have the link this is a fantastic resource and i love i love that they i love that they 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 play off the whole rosetta thing our fifth email comes in from jeremy jeremy writes in and says what causes the USB speed to drop continuously when copying files off of a USB drive or using DD? For some reason, when I run DD to a USB drive, it starts at a reasonable speed and then drops until it's at 40 or 50% slower until it drops off entirely. I thought maybe it had something to do with memory size, but I wanted to hear your take. Best, Jeremy. Thoughts? Is it possibly thermal throttling? I feel like I've had in the past where if I'm copying large amounts of data to a flash drive, it'll get inordinarily hot and cause it to slow down, or at least seemingly. Uh, this is a bit more of an obscure problem I've had with it, but sometimes if you don't update your BIOS, uh, you can lose speed in random parts of your computer, including USB. I'm going to go with cheap USB flash drives that have a <laughs> that uh, that aren't very performant. Steve, what are your thoughts? I definitely second the heat issue. Um, that is primarily what, what the problem is. So it's, it is because the chipsets are really cheap, but they heat up. And when, once they heat up, um, if you know a little bit about how electronics work, the more uh, heat that is generated in an area, the harder something has to work to push electrons through or an electrical signal. And so it just kind of compounds itself. It has to work harder because it's hot which makes it hotter, which makes it have to work harder. And eventually you get into this, like it's just going to grind to a halt. Yeah. So what can he do about that? Just stick his laptop in a, in a freezer? It's not usually the laptop. It's normally the, the USB drives itself, although it can be. But you, you can actually get these things where they can get so hot they'll melt in the socket. So you got to be really careful with the really Chinese stuff. And it's harder and harder to actually determine what the what the good brand to buy is because of all the knockoffs out there and the the um yeah the i know cheap copies i know i've seen in the past i think it was kingston made a really nice flash drive like the quality of your flash drive can be helpful as well like kingston had an actual flash drive that the casing for the flash drive was all aluminum and it basically acted as a heat spreader so that way when you're copying larger files the whole thing is basically able to the entire device is able to dissipate that heat so simple things like that um other ideas are if you're uh on a regular basis needing to copy large amounts of data uh quickly um you could look at doing something like an uh nvme or n.2 enclosure that has uh like an actual thermal pad on it with a metal heat sink on it um, there's those kind of routes that you could go as well. And I've, I've had some NVMe drives get pretty toasty though, too. Like they, they can kick off some heat and sometimes the build quality of those are not a whole lot much better than the, than the cheap flash drives. Yeah. If you're going to go that route, you definitely want to do your research and make sure that the enclosure you're getting for your NVMe is going to be a good quality enclosure. Cause if you don't and you do let it get hot, you end up running the risk of killing a really nice NVMe drive. You know, if you know, if Jeremy wanted to move here, it was 50 below zero with the windshield the other day. I think if he just went outside the parking lot and went and copied his files there, I think he'd be fine. 
Yeah, <laughs> laptop file transfers is highly advised in North Dakota. Our gadget of the week this week is your Steve. I can't wait to tell you about this. I'm so excited. It is. It is. You ready? The laser line wire fishing kit. So at the end of the year at Alta Speed, we sit down and we have a meeting. Kenny's laughing. We have a meeting oh, to decide man. what things we absolutely have for the next year. And so we ask things like, what tools do you need? What equipment do you need? And that's the time for people to say, hey, I need a laptop upgrade or a monitor upgrade or I need uh, these tools to be useful in the field or that would be useful. And what what they came back with to my office was, we need a CO2-powered gun that shoots fishing line 150 feet with a laser laser sight on it. And I, and I said, haha, that's very funny. Get out of my office. And then they went, no, really, this is what we need. Said, why do we need this? To be fair, we started with a uh, Fisher Price version of it. So uh, we were, <laughs> well, it was, it was, it was Greenly. Yeah. So I, I like to say Fisher Price because that's what it essentially looked like. But Greenly makes a device, uh, where it's essentially a, uh, little spring loaded Nerf gun, basically, that has, uh, a thin fishing line attached to it. And when you put the dart in, it cocks back the spring and you shoot it and it throws the dart, you know, 50 feet and it has a ton of drop. And we're looking at this and we're like, oh, this is pretty slick. This could be, you know, kind of helpful for when we're uh, running cable in commercial buildings with drop ceilings where they have uh, wide open space above the, the drop ceiling. We actually had a very la- large install recently where this was the case. Could have saved us hours just doing that simple thing. I think the quote for what you're talking about came back at something like 20 hours to get wire from where they wanted to get wire to to where they wanted to get wire to. And when we went and looked at it, the big problem was, you know, you have a false ceiling at eight feet and then you have, you know, 30, 40 feet of actual ceiling before you hit the, the ceiling truss or the, the, the roof truss. So if you're trying to strap your cables and not just lay them on the false ceiling, you've got to go way up. Well, the problem was to get into those ceiling rafters, you would have to what? Go through the false ceiling, one ceiling tile at a time with a 40 foot ladder, get the cable in, take it all the way back down, move over one, one or two ceiling tiles, go back up. This way you start at one end, stick the gun up into the ceiling rafters, fire it, it shoots straight. No drop, right? This is what's amazing about this thing. And there's a little dart that comes out the front of the gun and carries the fishing line all the way 150 feet to wherever you pointed the little red dot laser that's attached to the gun uses a standard CO2 cartridge, the little, uh, uh, you know, 12 gram cartridges that you'd get at Walmart or Amazon or whatever. Uh, and then you have a, a piece of pull string that you can then pull your wire across. So fundamentally, a way to get cable where sometimes you just literally couldn't get a way to get cable. And we deal with that more often than I care to admit. And there's oftentimes you we can't get a scissor lift in there. We can't get a ladder in there or you could, but it would be highly unsafe to do so. And so then we can't do that. So this is kind of a unique tool that's a little bit out of the box and, and, and you know, when it first came up, we were kind of joking about it. But then as we looked into it, it is it's a money saver. If you work in IT, or even if you don't work in IT and you're just like having fun, uh, if you have a need to, mo- to get wire from point A to point B, uh, this is a great way to do it. Uh, they're about 300 bucks, so they're a little spendy if you're not doing it uh, professionally, um, but a great way. Steve, I think you need one of these for your house. Yeah, I was actually just picturing myself shooting this across my attic. I have right? the uh, I have an open ceiling across the entirety of, of my upstairs floor, uh, which is kind of unusual. And I was just thinking to stick my head up in the crawl space and just fire this thing all the way across because I need to run some more uh, cable. Well, and honestly, that's one of the, one of the best things about this thing when we were looking at it is it actually has a pressure valve. So you can set it in an attic where you only need to go 25 feet. You can turn that down a little bit 
and you can get it to go 25 feet versus, you know, 150 if you don't want to put a hole through your drywall on the other side of your attic. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but you may also want to just shoot it at 150 feet for the fun of it. Uh, one of the other cool things, Noah talked about the, the standard CO2 cannons, uh, that will do 10 shots at 150 feet. So you can use it repetitively, and I would imagine the more you turn the pressure down, the more shots you can get out of it. I I strongly suspect, Steve, if you aimed right, you could go from your little attic access straight into your garage and uh, and save yourself a whole lot of climbing around. <laughs> so if you, uh, I'll let you borrow. You can you can have fun. See see where it gets you. So the the challenge we've had here at Alta Speed, one of the things that we do uh, across a lot of our equipment is we come up with names for their kits. So we have the IP camera installation kit or we have so on and so forth. So if uh, any listeners have any great suggestions for uh, we're thinking the acronym we want to use is Snipe, but think of some creative names that there might be go. a fun way to interact with the show tonight. Yeah, or Assassin. Assassin was the other one. So Assassin or Snipe. Uh, Snipe's a little bit more <laughs> simple to come up with an acronym for, but Assassin is, is definitely a, a cool one to come up with as well. Nobody will think that's weird when we take it out and uh, and go work on customer customer stuff. In the news this week, Snapcraft is getting a redesign. So the developers over at Canonical, if you've not used Snap packages before, you absolutely should. It's Everybody has come up with a universal way to package software. So the idea with Snapcraft is as long as you have Snapcraft running on a machine, doesn't matter what distro it is. In theory, it doesn't even matter if it's Linux. It, in theory, could run on any platform. But the idea is that Developers can easily and have a straightforward way to target a way to package software, and then users can just download those universal packages and install them. And their goal, as they continue to iterate on the work of Snapcraft, is to make the core product more modular, make it more efficient and more useful to Snap developers. And so this is going to involve breaking Snapcraft apart, and they're going to chop it up into smaller, even more modular pieces. And what that's going to allow them to do is reuse the components that they've put together. And in, in that way, they'll be able to utilize it across a wider range of products. And so they have a common foundation for all of this, and they call them craft libraries. They have a blog article on that. And so the theory here is that they're going to use generic parts of the builder based on craft providers and craft parts and add Snapcraft functionality as a separate layer. The current Snapcraft code base is now going to be considered legacy. The main entry point of this package is executed when it falls back to legacy, legacy Snapcraft is required. So we're not going to break anything going backwards, but it sounds like there's some big changes coming up. I guess here's my question. Why was the more modular we need to have this broken apart more not considered five, six years ago when they were originally going into snap packages. Why is this something that we're looking at now after we've gone to developers, after we've asked people to target snaps, after we've done the marketing push to get snaps, after we've said, hey, this is what's going to be, we'd like to become the new default in the most popular Linux desktop distribution out there. Um, why are we changing this from the ground up now? I think that that's a difficult question for outside observers to kind of chew on like as someone who's seen how software gets made a little bit and i'll stress a little bit because there's so much software at red hat part of what you do is you don't set out to build a rocket ship right and what i mean by that is you need a vehicle to go you don't necessarily need to send it to space and back or you don't need to have it 
be able to withstand multiple atmospheres of pressure to get things running. And so you can go one of two directions with this in the extreme. You can build a very little, you know, dinky car and that's not going to be sufficient. Or you can spend time over engineering something that may never have ever get off the ground and allow it to, you know, withstand, I don't know, 10 atmospheres of pressure when it doesn't really need to do that either. So I have some level of sympathy for this because you've got a project that needed to get off the ground, that needed to get adoption, that needed to be not overly complex as it started out. And and once they kind of proved it out, they got some momentum behind it. You know, uh, this is Steve kind of making conjecture here because I have no inside knowledge. But I imagine that, as with most things, you make choices on which type of technical debt that you're going to carry and I think that in this case, they're just, a, they're starting to address this because they see this as a long-term play. Okay. I, that makes some sense to me. So now we've seen what snap, snaps can do. We've proven them in, from the sense that, hey, if we want to take softer packages and ship them out and have an easy way to deploy them, we can. I will tell you, my experience has been uh, a little mixed. I'd say it's like an 80-20 mix. Uh, 80% of the time, snaps are great. 80% of the time... I go to use something like YouTube DL and the snap is up to date and whatever the third party repo that I had or however it was I installed it the first time isn't up to date. 80% of the time, a package that I'm looking for is available as a snap package. And I'll say this much. If I see it available in the snap store, I'm almost positive it's going to work. And that would not necessarily be true uh, with packages outside uh, it, with, with just adding repositories. So those are all in snaps favor. The 20% of the time, it's weird little paper cut style issues. Things like theming break. Things like uh, they didn't they didn't think all the way through, or they didn't examine an esoteric use case maybe on where I might need to escape the confinement of the snap package. And so now I can't make MKV is a great a great as you would say, Steve. For instance, when make MKV was first packaged, they didn't allow the ability to escape out of the home directory, which meant when I'm ripping 40, 50 gig Blu-rays, I can't use my 10 terabyte drive that's connected to my machine. I have to store it in my 120 gig, uh, 120 gig SSD that's in my home directory. And so that, you know, it presents weird little challenges like that, which, which can be kind of frustrating. And, and over time, those have gotten worked out, right? Like, you know, case of make MKV, that's now changed. So the, the technology was built around a lot of that stuff. And I, I think they've slowly improved it. What I'm hearing is, and I, I get it's, it's wax eloquent, but what I'm hearing is, Hey, this is the next evolution. Now we've, we've proven the breaking ground. Now let's see how far we can push this technology. My follow up question would be, is this the next move for canonical? Is this what they're focused on then is, is to, is to really invest in snap packages? And how does that, how does that move their needle forward? Because everything that I've seen, again, like you, an outsider to canonical, everything I've seen from the outside, they've pulled back from the desktop, right? And they've put into cloud and server market. And hey, that's kind of what we're looking, trimming people to make their company lean, presumably for a buyout, but we don't know. It seems like this is kind of, I don't know, a strange path to take if that's your goal. I don't think so. Um, you know, again, I have no inside knowledge, but if I was to guess, if I watch the evolution of these things, I see the RPM OS tree on one side of the fence providing a way to get kind of atomic updates without really um, worrying about breaking your main system. And then on the other side, you've got snaps where 
yeah, okay, we seem to be all focused on the desktop, but like this is available on, on servers and has been a server interface for quite a while. Unlike Flatpaks, which is almost wholly dependent on the desktop, snaps kind of cross over. And I think that you can see Ubuntu making an IoT play with this because you've got people where they want a, they want a stable base, but they need an application to be rolling. And how do you do that? And I can see this as kind of an evolution to that path where they didn't go the RPM OS tree. They don't have necessarily atomic updates, but what they do have is the ability to, um, with precision, go in and update specific packages as part of the Snap ecosystem. And I can see this being really good in the embedded use case. I can see this being really good in the server use case if they can push a lot of the, mm, let's say, more troublesome packages into the Snap ecosystem, mm. it'll serve them well in the long run. So now you have a, a true separation between your operating system base and the production packages that you're that you're relying on so that when a log4j thing pops up, hey, we can move updates on this thing without breaking anything else. Oh, by the way, we know it's going to work because it's all in a nice little containerized box. Exactly. Uh, Moxie Marlon Spike is stepping down as CEO of Signal. So Signal, if you're not familiar, was first launched in November of 2015. It was a combination of two previous applications called Tech Secure and Red Phone. And so when it was launched, the idea was a completely privacy-centered messenger. It utilized something called a double ratchet protocol, which we've talked about previously on the show. And it's it's been widely used by a lot of people to include notable people like Edward Snowden. Uh, he's been quoted saying, use everything that Whisper Systems company who made uh, Signal makes. So in February of 2018, Marlon Spike announced that the Signal Foundation, a nonprofit uh entity that was initially funded by $50 million uh, as, as, a, as part of a loan from Brian Acton, the co-founder of WhatsApp. And uh, and so recently what they've done is they've continued to iterate on Signal. They've continued to push it as a platform. They've continued to get more people involved. And recently they added things like privacy-focused money transfers to the app so you can do cryptocurrency transfers to anyone worldwide. And Signal has become kind of a go-to tool for people that are in media, for people that are paranoid and in security, for people that just need an easy way to be able to communicate with their friends securely, uh, people that are whistleblowers and need to be able to get information to the media. Uh, it's been used in, uh, in, in pushbacks for tyrannical governments, all of that. And, and Signal has been right there at the forefront. And I've been proud that an open source tool has served a community so well. Uh, and, and largely, I don't, I don't necessarily agree with everything that Moxie says and the way that he goes about doing things. I would push back a little bit on his uh, on his um, reservations of having third party signal clients. But but I, I deeply respect the man for the work that he's done and where he's gotten signal. And so, quote, I have now been working on signal for almost a decade and it's always been my goal for signal to grow and sustain beyond my involvement before years ago. That would still not have been possible. I was writing all of the Android code and was writing all of the server code. The only person on call 
and facilitating all of the product development and managing everyone. I couldn't ever leave cell phone service. I had to take my laptop with me everywhere in case of emergencies. And occasionally I found myself sitting alone on a sidewalk in the rain late at night trying to diagnose the service degradation. Now we have a great leadership team. It's facilitating product development managing the organization and pushing the technology forward. Most importantly, the values and the mission that Signal was built on are embedded in the whole organization and everyone involved here to honor them and see them through. Simultaneously, Signal has grown in adoption and in popularity around the world faster than I could have ever imagined. People are increasingly find value and peace of mind in having Signal technology built for them instead of for their data. And we're increasingly willing to sustain it. Every day, I'm struck by how boundaries of Signal's potential looks. I want to bring in someone with fresh energy and commitment to make the most of it. In other words, after a decade or more, it's difficult to overstate how important Signal is to me, but I now feel very comfortable in replacing myself as CEO based on the team that we have and also believe that it's time for the important next step for expanding Signal success. I've been talking with candidates over the past few months, but I want to step uh I want to open the search with this announcement in order to help find the best person for the next decade of Signal. And so Brian Acton, the co-founder of WhatsApp and the financier of Signal, with that $50 million loan is going to become Signal's interim CEO as Moxie Mahler and Spike steps down as Signal's CEO over the next month. And so they're going to continue to roll out features. They're going to continue to push privacy forward. Um, I, Steve, I know you're more of a Telegram guy than a Signal guy, but have you looked at Signal? You played with it? You like it? Anybody at AltaSpeed use Signal? Care for it? been using signal for mm, i don't know seven eight years now um it's largely because i replaced my sms app with that and uh yeah i continue to use it because i can interrupt with with people who don't use signal and uh you can hear a repeating theme here for me uh i like it i don't ha- i only have about eight people on my entire list that actually have the signal client but, uh, you know, I'll keep using it. That's fantastic. Um, the a dev corrupted the MPM libs color and faker breaking thousands of apps. So uh, this was a story that came out. Concerns emerged as to how big business were using or exploiting rather open source by consuming it incessantly, but never giving back enough to support the unpaid volunteers who sustain these critical projects by giving of their free time. And so essentially what happened is a developer intentionally corrupted his open source software project because nobody was willing to pay him to uh, that's the that's an that's an unfair way to phrase it but he corrupted the his software project because he reached out to these these large massive fortune 500 companies and said hey i'm developing all this software essentially for free you're not doing anything to support my project so would you kindly fork my project and go maintain it yourself because I don't want to do this for free for you. And the big company said, yeah, that's great little guy. Thanks. And then they went back to using his software for free. So he went, okay, watch this. Liberty, 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 liberty. And it just spat out random uh, in incoherent text blobs. And it was a way of kind of saying, hey, this is unfair. And so I may or may not agree with the way that he went about doing this. But Steve, your thoughts on the message that this sends for people that are relying on open source. This was a tough one. I wasn't sure how I felt about this because I think I, it, it kind of dovetails off of what we talked about last week where we were talking about the, the model for open source. And I absolutely sympathize with, with this user. At the same time, you know, they, they took a shot at, um, 
causing a little bit of disruption. And it wasn't just, you know, the big guys. It was also the little guys that got swallowed up. And, and you might argue that it's the little guys that would end up bearing most of the brunt for something like this because the big guys often mirror things or have a way to roll back in some fashion where the little guys are less likely to have that. Mm. So this one, this was a tough one because at, at one side, on one side, like what else is he going to do? Right. It's, he's, he's reached out and not gotten anywhere. And, you know, there's, uh, sometimes, sometimes an act of, of civil disobedience can be enough to get the attention to make the change happen. But at the other end of things, like you just violated a whole bunch of people's trusts. And I wonder how much damage this did to the open source community for, for the reputation, right? Like how many other places are going to now think twice about this? Maybe, maybe not many, right? Maybe this was such a small impact overall that the, the impact of this is going to be negligible. But can you imagine if this was say something in PIP that every, like, Oh my gosh. I, I don't, I can't even think of one. Like, you know, the setup tools. What if the maintainer of the setup tools in, in Python PIP decided to do this and then nobody could run the setup tools? And nothing built like, you know, you've just violated that, um, that trust in the open source ecosystem. And you, you went from a, this is a, you know, professional thing to take it seriously down to, uh, this is just a bunch of people playing around. Yeah, that's, I, I, I struggle with it a little bit. Like you say, there's not a lot of other options that are available, but at the same time, I feel like if you either decide that you're going to give of your time and produce an open source project or you're not. And part of producing an open source project is you don't get to say who gets to use it and who doesn't get to use it. You don't get to put qualify arbitrary qualifiers on it that says, hey, if you're making X amount of money or more that you don't get to use my project. You don't get to do that. You either make an open source project or you don't. And if you want to license it as a proprietary code and you want to sell it, I support your right to do that. I don't think it's a good idea. But I, I support your right to do that. And if you insist on getting paid for doing a thing, that's likely the route that you should go. But I, there's the emotional part of me says this is not the right way to treat people. It doesn't matter what, how much money is or isn't involved. If you're not happy with getting paid, don't do the project anymore. Just abandon it and let somebody else take it over or do it and then do it well because it reflects on your name. It's your reputation that's behind it. And I have to balance that immediate knee-jerk reaction with and ask myself, well, do we need more attention drawn to this situation? Because we just talked about, we just talked about this with Log4j, right? The reason that we're in the mess that we're in with Log4j, the reason that we were in the mess that we were in with Heartbleed is precisely because people aren't supporting projects that we all depend on. And we're not talking about, oh yeah, it's a nice convenient thing to have. No, the literally the thing that provides the bank encryption for your banking site relies on open source technology that's funded was funded by a handful of people and the a logger that gets introduced to a, a bazillion different pieces of software is handled by a small development team that is is volunteering their time so i really think that it, it you you have to be able to just make a decision on either i'm doing this or i'm not and and don't throw your own name under the bus cuz i feel like that's kind of what he did
Last week, we released the special edition of the Ask Noah Show, where we talked about the origins of the Alta Speed story. So joining me in the studio is Kenny Schmidt, Isaac Danielson, Peter Dennert, and they are going, to, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, Alta Speed and kind of where we're going the last few minutes of the show. So if you have questions, you can throw them in the chat room uh, at uh, mindrep1.com. You can join us at 855-450-NOAH. You can send us an email live at Show. Dot com. So I, I want to start with this. So Isaac, you're the newest member of the team. Um, you 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 interned with us um, over the last year and uh, and officially joined the team. I think last week. Uh, and so I guess how's it been so far? Uh, personally, I've really loved it. Honestly, um, tech is one of my big passions in life. Like I've been doing stuff with computers since I was like four. Uh, so finally being able to do that for something that will pay off for me and my family long term, uh, that makes me really happy. And I also just love the environment I work in. Uh, it's it's very low stress in the fact that I feel like I'm valued as a person instead of an employee. Um, so that's one thing I really appreciate about uh, working here. So I want to t- you, you touched on something kind of interesting. You said, I'm, I'm you know, I'm a tech nerd and, you know, the, the, the style fits. You have an interesting hobby. I, if you don't mind, I kind of want to dig into that a little bit. Uh, you and your friends hunt down criminals. Tell me about that. Uh, so yeah, uh, me and some of my close friends, uh, are the town we live in. They, the police department has an Instagram and they post the weekly wanted, they call it. And they just post like six or seven random criminals, um, that are on the run or are missing. Or have escaped and they just, they give you the tip number and ask anyone willing to help to help. And I never really looked far into that at all until I got the job and I was, I was like, hey, maybe I could use some of the technology skills to help find some of these people. And we haven't had a lot of success recently, but we have actually, uh, fully found one of the criminals on that list a few months ago and he's currently in prison and you're using what exif data uh pardon uh image data uh yes okay take a look so so i i ask you that to dig in a little bit because there is a theme for the people that work at altaspeed it's that we're geeks first and then we what altaspeed is is really just the umbrella to funnel our geekiness in and pair that with people that need technical help. And so as we kind of approach the next year, there's there's a couple of big things that we want to accomplish. So Steve uh, has has been on and off helping us um, kind of look at our data center migration so that we can move all of the stuff that we're currently hosting over at DigitalOcean and take more control of that data, more control of that infrastructure and host that in the data center. That also opens us up to in the future being able to, op- uh, to host things for client side. But the other thing that I that we're we're rapidly working towards is more community involvement to give back to the community to say, Hey, here's a skill, a tool, a resource that we have. How do we give that back into the community? And, and, and so I, I, I guess if there are, if people have questions, if you have thoughts or if you have a way that you say, Hey, this is something that the Alta Speed guys did. And you, I listened to the special episode and I, I just don't understand how it is you you got that or what specific tool you did that or how it is you you managed to accomplish that that's what we're here for and so um we're from time to time we'll have the guys in the studio and invite them in and just have them answer questions i don't know why it took me 
so long to, 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 to go 10 feet over there and say, hey, you guys want to come 10 feet over here while we do the show at Tuesday? I mean, everybody kind of pops their head in and says hi before you guys take off. But like nobody has that. Like, it's, we've only done it a couple of times. I know, actually, I think, uh, this was quite a while ago, but I think the first, one of the first experiences I ever had with Noah was actually, uh, kind of the beginner's guide to trying KDE, I believe. Uh, he had done an experiment where basically he had bought, a, you know, a cheap, thin and light little laptop and he said, Hey, I want to give this to someone that has never used Linux before and I want them to play with it, um, and see what they think. And I remember coming on and doing a short little interview with you on the, on the station. This would have been, probably two years back now mm-hmm. um, and getting to go through and I actually had, you actually had me on as a guest for your show. Uh, so yeah, it's kind of cool to do it. a little bit about that and also kind of cool to see how much you can learn about Linux in, in a short two years. It's pretty incredible. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, so now, and I guess maybe this is a, a question for, for Peter. Uh, we had some people ask about, Hey, how are you guys using uh, or, or how are you setting up Ansible to provision uh, laptops. And even when I was talking to Steve about it, he's, you know, is that really worth it? Your thoughts on how, why do you like Ansible so much and how does it accomplish those goals? Uh, I mean, it allows you to uh, basically get back to where you, you're at very, very quickly. Um, so, and, and it also like, like tomorrow, if Ansible goes away, like you could still go and look at an Ansible playbook and understand what you needed to do. So it's not only does it get you back very quickly, it is in a sense documenting what you're doing as you're doing it. Sure. It's almost essentially like bash history, but in reverse, it's the thing that you have beforehand. Yeah. And I just find, yeah, you know, the easier it is to document something, the the more likely it is to get done. And it's always Always good to document. All right. So as those things come available, we publish everything. We don't do a lot of stuff that's closed source. Pretty much everything is available on our GitLab that we do, unless it contains some sort of secret config thing because it's client specific or something like that. For the most part, you can go to Altispeed's GitLab and just, you can see what we're doing as a company and you're welcome to take advantage of what we want to give back. And there's going to be a renewed focus in that in 2022 to say, Hey, if we have some extra time, how do we take that time? How do we give that back to the community and help people who otherwise wouldn't have access to those resources have access to those resources? Hey, the music in our ears means we're out of time. Thanks for listening to the show. We record every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. You can learn more at AskNoahShow.com. We publish all of the show notes. So if you're listening as we talk about projects and resources and articles that we prep the show, all of those are available to you. You can find them at podcast.asknoahshow.com. The Ask Noah Show continues next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. Huge thanks to... Sarah, our call screener. We'll be back next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. You can follow us on Twitter at Ask Noah Show. I'm at Colonel Linux. He's at Linux Ovens. 6 o'clock Tuesday. AskNoahShow.com. Show.com.